Welcome to the Amputee Show. I'm your host, Aristotle Domingo. Joining me today is Canada's first surgeon to perform osseointegration integration in Canada, Dr. Robert Turcott. Welcome to the show, Dr. Turcott, and thank you for finding the time to shed light on osseointegration in Canada. Perhaps we can start with a little introduction. Can you tell us a little bit about yourself? Well, I'm, a, I'm an orthopedic surgeon uh, based in Montreal at the McGill University Health Centre. And uh, I primarily do bone and soft tissue tumors. I'm a cancer surgeon. And uh, I've been, uh, I came around, you know, many amputees as part of my work and part of my interest as well. You may not know, but the uh, amputees uh, uh, do not raise a lot of interest by many surgeons. Mm-hmm. And uh, oftentimes amputation is, is performed and uh, uh, not always by fully knowledgeable uh, surgeon. And uh, sometimes in difficult uh, timing, you know, in the event of trauma, emergency procedure, and so on. Mm-hmm. And so I, I've been uh, interested in the amputees and refashioning stumps and, uh, you know, dealing with uh, the modification occurring to the year to uh, the amputee stump. And mm-hmm. in the early 2000, uh, we came across uh, Dr. Brandmark. Mm-hmm. Uh, who was the initiator of osteointegration. It started in Sweden. And it was uh, the Brandmark uh, family has kind of invented the tooth implant mm-hmm. and uh, then transferred this knowledge into the MPT world. So trying to reproduce what they did with dental implant with, you know, transfemoral implant. And, uh, so unfortunately, after we visited in Sweden in 2002, if I remember well, uh, we were not able to convince the authorities to allow us to perform a, such an innovative procedure, should I say. Mm-hmm. It was also very expensive at the time. The implants were out of price, and there was not much literature. So anyway, we were kind mm-hmm. of uh, all done into our action until you know, the middle of the, the 2010s. In 2016, we went to Australia and uh, meet with uh, the team of Dr. Uh, Munjed and with the team from the Montreal Rehab Institute. And uh, of course, there have been development, there have been publications, there have been lectures, that technique, and we had more uh, background now to kind of convince the authorities to support the, uh, the new technology. So uh, when we came back, we had a bit of struggle, but finally we were able to convince the uh, Quebec Health Insurance Authorities Mm-hmm. to make a special budget uh, to allow for, let's say, a pilot study, so to speak. We got uh, granted 50 procedures per year for three years, so about 150 uh, cases to be performed. And uh, then to be re-evaluated based on the successes or the difficulties to decide if this was uh, worth the pursuit in that direction. So, Unfortunately, COVID, as, uh, like anywhere else, has helped us a lot. Right. That impacted a great deal for this type of elective uh, surgeries. But we hope by uh, the fall that thing will resume to normal. I didn't realize, and, that, and that's great to understand, that sort of the idea came from the tooth implant. Yeah. So that's new to me. I've always thought that also integration had started from Australia about eight or nine years ago. Started in the late 90s. 90s. Brandmark. His father mm-hmm. uh, was not a, a doctor. His father was a scientist. And mm. he, he invented the tooth implant. And then his son, who was an orthopedic surgeon, created this into limbs. You know, they did a few cases over the years. It became more established in the early 2000s. And uh, they had their own technique. It's, it's crude in implant as opposed to uh, a press fit implant. So, mm-hmm. uh, but, you know, tooth implant have proved, have proved very viable long term, mm. you know. Mm-hmm. And uh, so have uh, the uh, osteointegrated implant for amputees. So we have, you know, a lot, uh, lot to come in terms of design of the implant, you know, the technology, the science behind it. But certainly right. uh, the foreseeing catastrophes to occur following osteointegration, when I was trying to sell the ID years ago, have not happened, fortunately. Even though it's not perfect, there's some risk associated with the technology uh, right. and the procedure. Uh, certainly, in most instances, it's been a success. That sounds good. Now, for our listeners who may not be familiar with osteointegration, because it, you know, again, it's very new to Canada, and 
as an APT myself, I do a lot of research for my own care and just being an advocate for myself and advocate for other APTs. Can you tell us a little bit about what osteointegration is? And you talked about the little the, the innovations and the process of doing that. So what is exactly osteointegration? What is the actual process of it? If you can explain okay, that well, in layman's so terms. So basically, osteointegration is the insertion of a metal implant through your skin into the bone. So the bone is hollow, the bone is made like a tube. And mm-hmm. basically we get in uh, under, uh, you know, under uh, pressure, if you wish, uh, right. a piece of metal uh, into your bone that will avoid and obviate the need to have a socket. So basically your prosthesis will attach to that piece of metal that protrudes through your skin from your bone. And so this is the concept. And so, and this is what we do also in the, like in hip arthroplasty, when we do a hip replacement, there's mm-hmm. similar implants that are banging in the, the bone and the biology of bone and the nature of the uh, metal and its surface will allow the bone to kind of fuse with the implant, making, making it a permanent bonding in most mm. instances. So, so the problem as an MPT is that when you wear a, a socket, uh, the uh, socket has to deal with the soft tissue around your bone. So your, right. your thigh or your calf is imprisoned into a rigid envelope, but nevertheless, mm-hmm. the muscle, the skin, you know, these are flexible structures. So the bit of moving into this, and also mm-hmm. the bone is moving. You're not solicitating, you're not using very much your muscle when you're in the socket. You more often sit in, onto your socket than uh, really uh, weight, uh, you know, uh, weight on your bone directly. So when you use mm-hmm. a, a nasty-integrated implant, you use your muscle. There's no socket, so you have the freedom. You have direct connection of the prosthesis and the ground right to your bone. Mm-hmm. And uh, this allows you to maximize your stability, your uh, understanding of the surrounding. You get like a third sense where the ground is, what mm-hmm. type of ground you're walking on it. Is it soft? Is it hard? And same way, if you tap on your tooth, you mm-hmm. will feel that you can feel pressure. And, and it, this is the same type of sensation amputees get with these uh, through-the-bone implants. You know? Now, are the materials um, titanium or is it what sort of materials is that metal piece that goes into your bone? There's different type of material. Most often it will be titanium, mm-hmm. um, but there's other type of alloy which are used e- even in, you know, centigration implant and other type of implant. But mm-hmm. most often I would say titanium have done the job. Oh, okay, good. Now, you were the first surgeon to do this here in Canada at your clinic oh. in Montreal last year, is that correct? Yeah, we did the first case, uh, first case in Canada uh, almost two years ago now. And uh, mm-hmm. we've done the first public case, so we started the... Uh, uh, initially in private because there were no uh, supported public program. Mm-hmm. And and uh, we started the first uh, public case uh, last fall, so nine months ago. Oh, okay. Have you had many of the, pro- like how many private ones have you done and then how many on the public uh, surgery have you done? Uh, we've done about uh, four, four or five private uh, until okay. uh, last uh, March and we've done uh, four public we have about uh, 25 patients on the wait list right now oh wow so it's it's really becoming popular in canada yeah so and we that, have and patients mostly from quebec and ontario but we have a few right. uh, people from saskatchewan and and other maritimes and, and, right um now i've been to a few talks on also integration with dr manjed and the australian team and also the dutch team last year the selection for candidacy to the surgery seems simple, but I also noticed some differences in how each team determined candidacy for the procedure. What are the indications and contraindications to determine the candidacy of which patient to receive the procedure for you? Okay. So I'll, I, w- I will say uh, from the beginning that we're probably the tightest in terms of indication. Mm-hmm. I visited, you know, Sweden, Australia, uh, you know, Netherlands. Mm-hmm. And I think our process is the stricter, the, the most uh, tight uh, for patient selection. So patients mm-hmm. are selected uh, 
with a multidisciplinary team that includes a physiotherapist, a prosthetist, a specialist into rehab of amputees, which mm -hmm. is a physiatrist, myself, mm -hmm. and a neuropsychologist. You know, amputees have many issues besides mm -hmm. the, uh, the problem of wearing a socket prosthesis. It includes post-traumatic stress syndromes, anxiety, uh, chronic pain. So we need to ensure mm -hmm. for the success of the procedure that the patient are well, you know, well in all their aspect of their mind and physical capacity. Obviously, if you're morbidly obese, if you, uh, you have a poor control diabetes, you might not be suitable for this procedure. So there is physical criteria, but there's also other aspects of the patient that needs to be uh, addressed especially issues with chronic pain and uh, post-traumatic stress syndrome. Mm -hmm. and, and some of our patients, uh, you know, before we proceeded with the surgery, they underwent some uh, therapy, either for mm -hmm. pain or stress. And um, this made a lot of change in their, uh, you know, in their well-being and uh, moved them into a more suitable uh, position to undergo the procedure and the rehab. So that's physically and mentally preparing them for the Absolutely. surgery itself. Absolutely. This is very important. You know, if you're uh, very depressed, if you have suicidal thoughts, mm -hmm. um, asintegration might not uh, alleviate these, you know. So you need mm -hmm. to address these beforehand. And, and right. uh, you know, most amputees are, are okay, are fine, and uh, they're dealing well with the, uh, all the events that uh, happened to them. Uh, mm -hmm. But some have some difficulty, you know, and uh, and it's important that these being addressed. Like uh, like if you're overweight, you may lose some weight before we uh, we accept to. Uh, and it, it it's for your benefit, you know. We're not there to judge mm -hmm. people. We're trying to put people in the best condition possible to benefit the most from the procedure. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. When the NPT was coming up to you and saying, "I wanted to do this this procedure." How long is that process really to, to start talking about it and then actually having the procedure done? And then what's the surgery like? Like how long does the surgery take? And then from your experience, the recovery time of each of, of the patient. Okay. So we usually prefer, we have, so at the Montreal Rehab Institute, we, we, mm -hmm. have the, we established the first OI clinic uh, three years ago. And so the clinic is, uh, we have a clinic uh, one half day a month where we evaluate three to four patients uh, at mm. a time. And so we prefer patients to be referred from their uh, doctor, their physiatrist, uh, most instance, their mm. rehab physician, uh, as a suitable candidate for the integration. So, the, mm -hmm. so we, we want the patient not to be disappointed, especially if you need to visit Montreal from uh, outside. And we want candidates that are, are likely to fulfill the requirements for the procedure. So, so if you are a smoker, for instance, you, know, you need to uh, be a non-smoker, you need to be not too overweight, you need to not be uh, very uh, bad, uh, suffering from very bad diabetes. Vascular disease also might be uh, a problem. You know, mm -hmm. most amputees, uh, most amputation relates to uh, diabetes and uh, vascular problem in the leg mm -hmm. so these mm -hmm. are not necessarily the best candidate for the procedure but let's say you you're referred and or you contact the clinic and you the, the first uh, triage goes well then within a month or two usually people will be seen people will be tested there's a lot of uh, we're testing the physical capacity now how much can you walk we're video videoing people to to understand better how uh, they function and their daily routine Mm -hmm. And uh, they, then they're met by the team. So the, the, the prosthetic, physiat the, phys the physiatrist, and the uh, psychology and the uh, physiotherapist evaluation, they all see the patient independently in the morning session. And in the afternoon, uh, the whole team will meet with the patient again after mm -hmm. we discuss the problem, seeing the videos. You know, so, some amputees have been, let's say, uh, uh, not uh, fitted the best way possible. And mm. some of the difficulty encountered might relate to a poor socket design or poor knee or alignment mm. of the uh, prosthesis. So sometimes uh, simple change in their uh, outfit and their prosthesis might improve their gait, their capacity a lot. So you might not need necessarily, because you have problem with socket prosthesis, to go to osseointegration.
Okay, right. so, so, so go ahead, sorry. Yeah, so I was going to say, and I've heard a lot about this in roundtables during these talks, and, and what I hear from amputees is, well, I get a lot of blisters or I get a lot of cysts with my socket and I'm just tired of it and I want to do osseointegration. And then to your point earlier, then I'll see them outside smoking. So then what's the commitment level then when you see a patient and then to the point that you made about, well, we see them and we notice that maybe just a final, you know, a little bit of adjustment to the socket will not cause those issues anymore. Then do you say, okay, well, we can just fix that. You don't have to go through the full process of doing this. Even though the person may have said, well, I'm going to quit smoking from this point forward if I'm going to have the surgery. Like, how do you, you sit with that patient for the, for that portion and then you assess even more so and say, how is this person going to succeed in the procedure? Yeah. Well, well, yeah. So, so the, you know, right now we have, a, let's say uh, the resources are limited. Let's put it mm-hmm. this way. And to see patients who are poor candidate, you know, it's a, it's a full day of evaluation for the mm-hmm. people that visit the clinic. So uh, it's a lot of work for all the members of the team. So we mm-hmm. don't want to lose the time of anyone. So if you're uh, obviously uh, uh, not a candidate to the procedure, there's no point uh, coming to mm-hmm. Montreal and being evaluated. Now, some people will see they might be a candidate if, you know, modification of their, uh, their socket or prosthesis mm-hmm. or some work on their uh, psychology, you know, Mm-hmm. Or some uh, better control of their diabetes might mm-hmm. be a condition before we mm-hmm. consider them. So, so let's say we would recommend that uh, you have some uh, psychotherapy session to improve mm-hmm. the, the way you deal with your uh, your personal problems. Uh, mm-hmm. You know, a report of your psychologist of your, about your progress may qualify you if you were okay otherwise. You know, so we might say. Six months down the road, you know, uh, I uh, address my problems. My pain is better controlled. My, I sleep better at night, you know. And this way, uh, because we've seen you already, and uh, right. with proof of your uh, of your uh, uh, of your doctor or your psychologist or whatever he is, then say, okay, that's fine. Uh, we agree now to, to that you uh, to put you on the list. So when when you get approved, let's put it this way. Uh, then you know, right now it's a uh, it's public medicine. It's covered by public care, mm-hmm. both in Ontario and for Ontarians uh, to be done in Quebec and and for Quebecers. So basically, mm-hmm. the wait list like any procedure. So you get in line, and depending mm-hmm. on the uh, urgency of your your condition, uh, you know the the wait list, the the the, the uh, operating room availability, and so on. Mm-hmm. Then you get uh, you get online. Obviously, mm-hmm. we, we can do for some patients, we can do private, especially if you're out of province or, or if you have an insurance company that will pay, in which case for the, the most simple cases, they mm-hmm. can be done in private. And uh, this, may, this may allow to access faster for the procedure, but it's, right. it's not because uh, you pay it goes faster, but it's a different, you know, it's a different path. Right, and uh, but most patients will go public, and uh, mm-hmm. there'll be let's say a three to six months wait time before mm-hmm. surgery would be performed normally. And also, you know, the the the, the person undergoing the procedure uh, needs to prepare because you know it's a two three two three months rehab process mm-hmm. where you'll be uh, partially on crutches for a while and so on. So sometime you need to stop working. Uh, right. So you need to prepare, you know, you need to uh, let your bus know and get organized. So it's not something oftentimes that you'll do uh, overnight. People, there, there's a, a disruption of the normal daily right. of the amputee for the months to come. So what does the, the rehab portion look like? So, so the, the, uh, the process is that you stay about three days in hospital. Mm-hmm. So two to three days as an inpatient following procedure for pain management, you know, and make sure everything went fine after the surgery. After mm-hmm. that, the patient is moved to the rehab institute mm-hmm. uh, for about a month and will start progressive weight bearing. So with the implant, we will connect like a temporary um, prosthetic foot mm-hmm. and people will start to load about five kilos every other day. 
So mm -hmm. they'll, they'll do uh, loading during the day, and every other day will go from 5 to 10 to 15 to 20 up. And, and the rate of progression is based on your uh, on the strength of your bone. So uh, most amputees have very osteoporotic hips, like a elderly mm. woman <laughs> type mm -hmm. of hip, mm -hmm. because the, the bone has not been loaded uh, most of mm. the time since the amputation. So uh, we need to let the bone reinforce itself a bit, recalcified, so to speak. Mm -hmm. And uh, we need also, because the implant uh, is you know is bang in quite uh, tightly uh, mm -hmm. the healing of bone to the middle has not taken place it will take place in the ensuing weeks following the procedure so right. if there was motion if you're loading your implant and there's motion between the bone and the implant that usually result into some pain mm. and when you have pain it's a sign that we're stressing too much your implant and mm -hmm. so the rate of weight bearing or the rate of progression of loading is based on these pain sensation you may exhibit, you know. So basically, it takes about four weeks to uh, reach about 50% of your weight. So let's say you weigh mm. 200 pounds. So when you reach 100 pound loading without difficulty, then you will start to wear your uh, permanent prosthesis, your permanent leg. And then progressive, we keep progressing with the, the, the real leg with two crutches uh, for a few more weeks. And then when one crutches, usually we'll let the patient go without anything at three months. But oh, okay. it's all based on your capacity, on the strength of your bone, on the secure fixation of the implant. Mm -hmm. But basically, the minimum, I would say, it's kind of uh, two months before you go without uh, any aids, uh, two, right. three to four months, depending. Oh, so that's what you were saying before about that you really need to plan for this because yeah, there's actual exactly. disruption of, of how long to, you need to recover. With work, you know, for two, three months. And this right. is somewhat disruptive as well, you know, so. Right. Now, you talked a little bit about putting on the uh, temporary prosthesis. Can the appliance that the patient already have be adjusted or sort of just be modified to add on to the osteointegration piece that's on their bone? Absolutely. So the connection, yeah, okay. Yeah, so your knee, let's say you're a transformal amputee, mm -hmm. so you, you, you can use the same knee and the same foot you were using. What changes mm -hmm. will be the connectors instead of a socket? You know, you have connectors between yeah. the, the socket and the knee. You'll yeah. have different connectors be, beside the, between the implant and your, your, your current knee. So sometime with this type of prosthesis, be, you know, people may want a fancier knee, so to speak, mm, right. genius yeah. or something like that. Yeah. So that will depend on the coverage and uh, what can be afforded, you know. So, right. But certainly, uh, I would say advanced knee are probably complementary to the mm -hmm. osteointegration procedure. Okay. Now, can the person go back to an active lifestyle, for example, Absolutely. running or jogging, swimming? Patient, uh, you know, obviously, if you're a, uh, you wear a socket prosthesis and you're farming, you're doing heavy lifting, you're jumping, you're skiing, mm -hmm. uh, maybe osteointegration is not for you. Osteointegration has this limitation. Uh, mm -hmm. We tell, uh, we recommend strongly that people avoid uh, like contact sport impact activities. You know, lifting, uh, leg pressing, 500 pounds is not for the right. implant. It's metal, metal may fatigue, metal may fracture, mm -hmm. uh, the bone may fracture too. So we want people to live a normal life. You can bike, you can maybe do a short jogging. You, you may be walking as much as you want. You, may, you, you might be uh, even skiing. But mm -hmm. everything that you do, if you fall and you, know, you, you have a ski that twists twist your, your knee, may result into a fracture and then you know, mm -hmm. it, it, it's, it's difficult to recover from this. So we want people to have normal life, but avoid the crazy thing. Right, right. <laughs> of course. I mean, that, that just goes for every IPG, I think. Now, I may be mixing the two. Both the Dutch team and Australian team have different yeah. opinions on the swimming part. I believe it was a Dutch team that felt swimming was okay in the open water. But the Australian team, oh, sorry, I think it was a Dutch team that said it wasn't good for open water, but swimming pools are fine. But the Australian team feels that it's perfectly okay to be swimming in the ocean or lake oh, yeah. Yeah, or yeah. whatever salt, it may salt be. Salt water so. is not a problem. So mm -hmm. I, I, I've seen it myself when visiting uh, into Sydney. So they, you can swim in the sea within a month. They allow people, even with an open stoma, they will not uh, 
fully healed. They will allow mm-hmm. it's like soaking, you know, and in, mm-hmm. in the water and salt. So yeah. the, the problem is are more for the pool. You know, pools are okay. uh, maybe a bit uh, dirtier. There's a, especially public pools. You know, there's a lot of right. people, so there might be more uh, bacteria. So no one have shown that you know going into if you want to kayak in the swamp area or if you want to mm-hmm. if you want to go to a public pool that this is dangerous so no one has made any proof of that it's just mm-hmm. like common sense so maybe in your pool you can uh, bat and swim uh, in the sea it's not a problem but mm-hmm. it's in dirty water it might not be ideal so people right. recover their their stoma you know just to prevent contact of uh, dirt and and uh, the wound, you know, the chronic wound of the stoma. So you brought up the stoma. So that just doesn't heal over, like the skin does. doesn't heal over them. Okay. And some people it does fully. Most people will have a few uh, drops of fluid uh, daily. Uh, yeah. And some will have more drainage that will require a little, uh, little sponge, you know, to be put around to absorb mm-hmm. that fluid. So obviously after the surgery, there is significant drainage. Mm-hmm. that goes down over time but we have patients who have no drainage at all and some who have like a low chronic drainage so mm-hmm. it's it's hard to predict and you you need to live with that but i would say most people will have a little bit of uh, fluid coming out uh, like a right. drop once in once in a while but it's manageable it's totally manageable mm-hmm. uh and uh the, you know what you require uh, is to take care of your stomach. It's like a diabetic with their feet, you know. You need yeah. to pay attention. You need to look. You need to clean them nicely. Mm-hmm. Make sure that there's no dirt. There's no, uh, you know, the, where, when you have dripping of fluid, sometimes there'll be a, a accumulation of a dead skin or accumulation of, uh, you know, solidified proteins, and you want to clean that. So it's like your mm-hmm. mouth, you know, you brush your uh, mm-hmm. teeth uh, twice a day or three times a day. Mm-hmm. Same for your stoma. If it's uh, slightly open, you need to keep that clean. If something has to come out, if the fluid, uh, uh, you know, is, is, is made, that fluid needs to come out. You don't want it to accumulate underneath the skin and that, because this would likely lead to an abscess or post formation, you know. Mm-hmm. So you, but, you know, the, the, the care of the stoma is minimal. It's mm-hmm. not something that is tedious, takes time, or is very complicated. So, just thinking about rejection of it at all, like does your does our bones ever reject the no the, the implant? No, no. Metal is inert. Uh, you know, allergy to metal is very very rare. It's mm-hmm. usually to nickel, and uh, we 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 don't use nickel implants. We use titanium. Mm-hmm. So there's no rejection. But you know, the failure of the procedure relates to the uh, failure of integration, which means the, the bonding between the bone and the implant. So right. It means the implant will become loose, loose. within the yeah. bone at some point. Or this loosening may also be caused by chronic infection. There is infection, and this is the main risk of the procedure because you have a piece of metal coming through your skin into your bone, and this may favor bacteria to enter your femur or your tibia, and chronically infect the bone. Not an acute infection with, you know, pus and fever and, mm-hmm. and being sick, but just a low-grade chronic process that ultimately will result into the loosening of the implant. No, absolutely not. Okay. So after the surgery, if you don't have any infections, you don't take antibiotics and maybe pain no, medication. You get antibiotics at the time of the procedure, and this is the most fear complication. The person who's had the implant, they don't go on anti-rejection drugs or... No, for a day, for 24 hours, and, and that's it. After that, you will rarely need uh, antibiotics, even if you have a mild uh, acute infection. Oftentimes, it can be resolved with baiting, with you no know, cleaning of the stoma. Uh, sometimes people will have inflammation. It's not infection. So the rule is to avoid getting antibiotics for, you know, every minute uh, episode. Mm-hmm. But mm-hmm. sometimes it will be needed because some people may develop real skin infection or stomp infection. Yes. Okay. So let's then turn to a little bit of what the government is doing. So in Ontario, Ontario yeah. Health have recommended publicly funding osseointegrated prosthetic implants for individuals with lower limb amputation. I know it's currently waiting for Health Canada approval. The province of Quebec 
is lucky in that you guys can have the procedures there already. You said that came about quickly for the province. So what would you recommend other provinces to do to ensure that the procedure gets funded in their provinces as well? Yeah, so Alberta, has, uh, there's been, I think, a couple of cases done, uh, I think it was late February, in Edmonton. There's a team uh, who started uh, ASEAN integration with the Australian implant. Mm-hmm. Uh, but they are uh, allowed, I think, to do 10 cases over two years. Uh, so it's like a pilot project. Mm-hmm. Uh, us, it, it's a bit different. So in Ontario, uh, we have a preferred provider agreement with OHIP uh, to perform osteointegration in the femur. They mm-hmm. currently refuse uh, osteointegration of the tibia. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's based on the publication, the knowledge about osteointegration they have. They feel tibia is not safe yet or not proven enough yet to allow it. But they do allow a short femur. And short femur calls for a slightly modified implant compared to the standard uh, osteointegration implant. Uh, they have allowed for that. And right now, Ontarians, we see that uh, our felt candidate for why we submit to uh, OHIP. Mm-hmm. And uh, so far, I've been granted permission until COVID uh, crisis arrived. Everything mm-hmm. I've been on all right now. But basically, uh, there is provision for the Ontarians to get the procedure done uh, in Montreal, but covered by the Ontarian Health Care. So this is, uh, and we see Ontarian, and also the amputees who are under the coverage of uh, WSIB, for instance, Mm-hmm. Uh, have access also uh, to this uh, program. We had a WSIB patient. We've done uh, uh, both public and private. Uh, mm-hmm. And uh, so these are covered. So, so and, and we had patients as well who were approved, uh, Nova Scotia and Saskatchewan too, uh, after making representation. So, you know, if you have someone from uh, New Brunswick, visit the clinic in Montreal, found the candidate, then we can try to help them getting coverage from their local healthcare, public healthcare, to pay for the procedure. So this is possible. We've done that. And mm-hmm. so, but the first thing we can help when you found a candidate. So the first thing will be to connect with the Montreal OI clinic and mm-hmm. uh, be, uh, be seen, evaluated. And after that, you know, we can support them making their representation to convince the authorities to cover for the procedure. So it's in a case-by-case basis in other provinces right now, at the it moment. Is. Right mm-hmm. now, it is. Uh, Ontario, one of the reasons that Ontario was reluctant is because uh, they feel there are not that many amputees uh, who would benefit from the procedure, that most amputees uh, are doing okay with a circuit prosthesis, and uh, that uh, the number does not justify uh, the, the foreseen number does not justify to develop a program. You know, if you foresee uh, 10 or 20 patients a year from Ontario uh, to develop a program in three, four hospitals for 20 patients a year makes mm-hmm. little sense. So, mm-hmm. so the, 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 this is the way it's been uh, perceived at the moment. Mm-hmm. Uh, I must say there, this is not entirely false uh, because we thought we would, you know, there's, there's, Many, many amputees out there in Quebec, for mm-hmm. instance. Uh, there's a backlog of pot- potential candidate, you know, for integration. Mm-hmm. And we did not get uh, submerged. We didn't get an overflow of amputees, you know, willing to undergo the procedure. We've been very surprised that maybe it's because people, amputee uh, population is not fully aware of the availability of the technology. Yeah, but at the same time, uh, we've seen patients, even amputees are missing clinic for other reasons, and maybe talk to them about it. And many are, you know, reluctant to engage into a complex, you know, rehab process, a few months, uh, surgical procedure. And uh, so at the moment, there's not been a a big wave of demand for integration. But that's okay, because we mm. not accommodate too many patients either, you know? Right. So the, the 50 that you talked about earlier for 
the Montreal Public Health or Montreal yeah. Healthcare. That's specifically for just Quebec. So yeah. that 50 doesn't count for two in Ontario or one in, you now, know what I mean? Ontario would be additional to this. Uh, right. Ontario will uh, not impact on uh, the uh, normal delivery of care of Quebecers. Things are done outside the regular, let's say, uh, regular uh, OR location. So this is oh. uh, extra accommodation, you know, for, for the people, which, which is good. So this is, uh, the, the, this is very good. So there's no real barrier besides uh, having to come to Montreal for any Canadian outside Quebec and uh, to undergo the procedure. And in most instances, it, it may get covered either by third-party payers such as a workman's comp, mm-hmm. or by the the you know provincial healthcare uh, providing mm-hmm. we make representation and justify the uh, surgery. So you do have to fly into Montreal to meet with a group, and then have the procedure in Montreal, and then also have your rehab in Montreal. You early rehab in Montreal, so it's about a right. month altogether, and then you go back home and pursue with your local rehab team. Till you know you everything is fine and you're back to normal activities uh, without restriction. So right. it's the early, the, the critical period, and because you know it, it, because it's very critical that the patient and the team work closely together. Uh, as as I mentioned, there's been a few patients done in the country. People have heard, I've seen maybe a case. Uh, but right. they have not been into the rehab process. They have not visited in Australia or Netherlands to understand, talk with the, the physiotherapists, with the prosthetist people about the, you know, the, 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 the fine-tuning following right. a centigration procedure. So that's why at the moment, uh, and this will obviously change over time, but at the mm-hmm. moment, uh, we insist that the early rehab process being done in Montreal, so it's done according to... Uh, how it should be performed. And as right. time goes by, people uh, in other uh, amputee uh, centers will gain uh, knowledge and interest and they, they will probably take over. This is mm-hmm. a matter of time only. Right. I was going to ask about the continuum of care after leaving Montreal. How do you ensure that that physio group, whether you know Alberta or BC, is still following the standards of post-surgery rehab for an osteointegration patient. Do you send that group a workout or a, a rehab schedule of what needs to be performed for that patient to ensure that the continuum of care continues? Well, well it, it, it's threefold. First, there's instruction given to the patient and the local team how things should proceed thereafter. Second, we keep in touch with the patient. There's a, ideally a few visits because so, these patients, this is also part of an evaluation process. Uh, to right. justify the viability of the implant and the, the long-term benefit to the amputee. Mm-hmm. So basically, we want patient to be retested, let's say one year after the, uh, and compare how they're doing now compared to a year ago when they had a socket, a socket prosthesis. And thirdly, uh, we are always available if there are questions. Like, and, right. and this is not true not only for other Canadians, but... You know, we, we, we deal with Quebecers uh, living uh, 500 miles away, you know. You cannot come just to say, I have a little redness. So, so they send pictures, you know, through text uh, to us directly, or they have their physio team, uh, rehab team uh, locally to get in touch with us, phoning us. And uh, so we ensure like a after-sale uh, type of, uh, you know, uh, uh, support. Because, yes, right. you know, if you're... Uh, you know, if you're in uh, Ottawa, that not many people have seen that, know what it is about. Right, right. Patients come to the emergency room because they have a redness. Uh, they know the emergency physician never seen that procedure. Right. So he doesn't know what it is about. So, yeah. So this is how it works everywhere worldwide. You know, we, we keep close to our patient. We keep close ties and links. And mm-hmm. if they have issues, they get back to us. That's really good to hear that there is partnership within provinces that the patients can reach out to to you and then also possibly getting their funding from the province themselves once it's justified that this, you know, this procedure will benefit that patient. So that's certainly great to hear. And I and I hope that reaches out to our listeners knowing about Aussie integration and knowing that this is actually possible. Cause I think a lot of the times it's like, well, my province doesn't cover it. And my understanding is always in Ontario is that. Well, it hasn't been approved yet, so we can't do any surgeries here. But then to your point earlier about 
doesn't really make sense to have so many hospitals doing it if you're only going to have 10, 20 patients a year, right? So almost have a centralized area where all the leaders and all the, the people that know the procedure is in one area and, and, and doing these surgeries. So that's really good to hear. So where do you see the future of osteointegration in Canada? It sounds like we're still a long ways away, or do you see that it will start rolling in faster than... Yeah, I, I think so. So as time goes by, not only uh, you know, in, in our, within our group, but worldwide, including the States, people are doing osteointegration. They're using various types of implants. Mm-hmm. Uh, so knowledge and expertise is gained over time. And we learn from these people. You know, they will probably be implants better than others. Uh, there probably be uh, surgical techniques uh, better than others. Uh, mm-hmm. It's a learning process. We'll, we'll be uh, learning from the patient. Uh, we'll be learning from our complication that will unfortunately uh, occur uh, uh, in some of them. Uh, and time will tell. I think the technology is there forever. It's there to mm-hmm. stay. I don't see us stopping us integration and say this is bad and no. Mm-hmm. But like, you know, like we started hip replacement uh, 40 years ago, and the technology has evolved, the metal employed has evolved, the implants have changed, the surgical technique as we find. And things are much better now than they were 30 years ago. So it will be the same for osteointegration. Osteointegration, I foresee it as a, a between, uh, between amputation and limb regeneration. Mm-hmm. It's the next step. So now we can connect the bone uh, and the prosthesis. Now we can have with the technology, now we can have you know, your brain or your nerve or your muscle activate uh, robotic arm or robotic foot. Mm-hmm. Uh, there, and the next step is to regenerate your limb. But in between, it's osteointegration. It's there to stay. And I think things will be even better 20 years from now than they are now. But we'll be learning because, the, you know, not every implant is probably uh, the same. Uh, mm-hmm. As you may know, in Montreal, we do the surgery in one, uh, in, uh, in one step. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's what Dr. Mudaris does in Sydney, one step. But some mm-hmm. people like the Swedish group and uh, some of the uh, Dutch uh, groups, not all of them, but some, they do it in two uh, steps. Mm-hmm. The first yes. step is put the rod in, you know, and close yep. the skin over the rod. And a yes. month, six weeks later, they go back and they open the skin and they put the connector uh, into the implant. So I prefer personally doing it in one stage. It's faster. It's not too surgery. It's mm-hmm. difficult to bring patient to the operating room. It's even more difficult if you need to do it twice, you know. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And and the Australian have shown that the complication in uh, with the one step procedure instead of two steps was even better, not only faster, but that you know the complication rate was lower. So this remains remains to be proven. But certainly, uh, it uh, allows us to kind of move of a one-step procedure, which makes everything faster. You've made mention earlier that you're following patients post-surgery as well. Yeah. So I'm assuming there's, there's research and studies going on right now on the success, successes of these patients in Canada. And hopefully, that'll help our government to you know, see this as, although the amputees are a small population in Canada that this procedure can vastly improve the quality of life of amputees here in Canada. Would you agree? I would agree. Uh, you know, I, I would not agree that it's for all amputees. Mm-hmm. I would not agree that, you know, that uh, most amputees should have this. Uh, but certainly, uh, we, we are learning from amputees who add the procedure. Uh, we're learning the benefit for sure. And everywhere I've been in the world, uh, meeting with patients who underwent osteointegration, all mm-hmm. of them had, had, had the same words, which is never a socket again. Right. When you, when you, when you touch to osteointegrated implant, uh, when it works, uh, and again, it may not work for everyone, unfortunately, right. but when it works, it's a world of difference into mm-hmm. your comfort, your pain, your activities, uh, your skin pro- problems, it's a mm-hmm. world of difference. A- and uh, this is the most gratifying uh, 
you know, result of this procedure that we make a significant change in patient quality of life and, right. and activities. So, so this is great. What do you think the next steps are for the leaders of amputee care here in Canada to advocate for? Well, there, there's different steps depending who you are. And I, I won't speak about the patient. I think uh, I, I said enough about, you know, a patient uh, mm-hmm. yeah. when they, they had a procedure. There, there, there's two issues. One is the cost, okay? So, mm-hmm. you know, healthcare is facing cost issues. These implants are very expensive. So, you know, the, the magnitude of twenty to $25,000 per implant, not, notwithstanding the, you know, the hospital cost and everything, but right. the implant itself, right. the connectors are expensive. So without proven benefit, I do understand that healthcare insurance company, third-party payer may be reluctant to invest mm-hmm. that much money. Plus, you may have complications. If you get an infection, if you get a fracture, this leads to additional costs. Costs that are not there maybe at the moment when you have a socket prosthesis. So mm-hmm. this is something pe- people who uh, have to spend the money are looking after. The, 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 uh, ad- so hopefully as the number of procedure increases worldwide, the cost of these implants will go- come down. Mm-hmm. And also there'll be the competition. You know, if you have many implants out there, it's like the, uh, the cataract surgery or the uh, right. dental implant. Price will come down as uh, you know uh, more implants are available and there's a competition. So that 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 that's for one. The second one is to educate people, amputees mm-hmm. and their providers and their uh, physician or you know rehab teams mm-hmm. about the potential benefit for many amputees of the osteo integration. Mm-hmm. So when you have patients who have a lot of problem with socket prosthesis who cannot wear the socket prosthesis very long. Uh, who are wheelchair bound uh, because they cannot, uh, especially the bilateral femur amputee. You know, mm-hmm. these are probably the best candidates for osteointegration. If you have bilateral uh, transfemoral amputation, uh, even if they're short and you, you cannot wear socket prosthesis because of the, the configuration of your ties, you know, anything like that. So, so these are probably the best uh, cases for osteointegration. These people have nothing to lose with osteointegration. If you wheelchair bound, you know, even if your osteointegration failed, uh, you'll be back to your wheelchair. So, so, but right. if it works and you walk without aid, like uh, some patient have experienced, then it's a dramatic change of, uh, mm-hmm. of life. No? So, so, so educate people to recognize the patient who, do, who does poorly uh, with the socket prosthesis. And maybe at least question whether, you know, the, the, the patient could be a candidate or the patient would have interest to consider uh, osteointegration as a way to improve uh, the use of prosthesis, you know. Now, this is, this is eye-opening for me, again, with just that connection you made that your team can ask for funding from the government. I think a lot of hesitation from maybe just my experience of Clinicians maybe not bringing the the procedure to the patient because they're not well aware that combining of funds to have the procedure done. So the conversations isn't happening. So my hope is with this broadcast and with this uh, chat we had that the conversations happen more and more and educating uh, both clinicians and patients will now say, hey, we can actually do this. We can walk with Dr. Turcott and the team there and see what we can do for you because you're experiencing all these things instead of let me not bring that conversation because it's never going to be funded anyway. Like, let's be honest, it, it all comes down a little bit to funding, right? You know, so, f- Funding is a hurdle, uh, but, right. you know, we, we, we have a basis. We have arguments um, to overcome the uh, reluctancy of, you know, the healthcare system. Uh, but, you know, it'll be patient. At the moment, it's patient uh, per patient, one patient at a time. You cannot right. have... In Quebec right now, we have like a global funding. Uh, we cannot mm-hmm. do 200. We can do, we're funded for 50. Mm-hmm. In Ontario, it's case per case, and they have restriction. If mm-hmm. you weigh 200, uh, 300 pounds, they will not pay for U.S. integration. Mm-hmm. You, if you meet the, the, the criteria, and you're a transferable amputee, they, they agreed now to cover. And mm-hmm. uh, so this is good. There's, a, you know, there's the difficulty of uh, submitting the case and getting approved. But mm-hmm. this is 
this is somewhat easy to do. Right. You mentioned, I, I wanted just to clarify the issue mm -hmm. about Health Canada approval mm -hmm. of implants. So Health Canada do not approve implant, uh, any implant we put, plates, screws, uh, hip replacement, and so on, mm -hmm. unless the manufacturer submit a demand to have recognition, to have authorization mm -hmm. to sell the implant in Canada. Okay, so what it means is that the manufacturer has to spend money convincing El Canada of the safety of their uh, of the use of their implants. This requires a significant uh, number of uh, uh, business perspective in order for a company to find profit by submitting to El Canada. So basically, it's led to the volume of business you're planning to have. This is true mm. with drugs. This is true with other type of implant. So mm -hmm. it's a matter of small volume. So there's no, no incentive for a small company to have an implant approved in Canada to do 10 cases a year. The mm. money is not there, okay? So, so the way it has to work then is for clinicians like myself to submit to Health Canada for each cases, even though it's the same implant every time, mm. for each cases to submit and explain to El Canada why would this individual benefit from this unapproved implant, what are the risks relating to that implant, what does the medical uh, literature says about this implant, to convince that it's relatively safe to put this implant in, uh, despite the fact that it's not officially recognized by Health Canada. So very mm. often these implants are recognized in Europe, Mm -hmm. Recognized in Australia, some are recognized in the States. But you know, the state, the market is 10 times what it is in Canada. So, so, and it's true for drugs. So, this is the limitation we're facing at the moment. But Air Canada never refused an implant I submitted. Mm. So, it's more like a process than a hurdle. You know, it's not a limitation. Right. right. And uh, so, so, this should not uh, kind of uh, prevent anyone to come forward for integration because it's not approved by Health Canada. Right. It's just a detail, you know, it's just a, right. it's just part of the process and there's no complication. Oh, okay, good. That's okay. that's really good to hear. I, I think there's a lot of things that I'm hearing today that I've not read anywhere in my research. And and so <laughs> this is really good. This is very eye-opening. And, and I hope to those listening, and I can guarantee you one right now that is looking into Austria integration. And the question that's weighing on his mind still is that he's not going to get funded in Ontario because that is what we hear. So, so no, hearing you, you say that. funded in Ontario. Right. So what you just said kind of lit up a bulb in my head going, I know who to call to say, hey, apparently you can do this. So, you know, let, let's start this process because I, I know the struggles that he's had with his current setup. So again, I wanted to thank you for your time providing your insight to Aussie integration in Canada. I really hope that the pioneering of this procedure in Canada will bear fruit to improve the quality of life of amputees here in the community. And I thank you once again for your time. I'm sure there's more to cover with this conversation and really certainly hope that I can bring you back in for further talk on Aussie integration. So thank you again. Pleasure, Arsal. I want to thank Dr. Turcotte for joining me today. I'll post the links about Aussie integration in Montreal on my website, aristotledomingo.com. Thank you for tuning in. If you have any questions or comments or ideas, please connect with me on Facebook and Instagram at The Amputeer Show. Until next time, I'm your host, Aristotle Domingo, and this has been The Amputeer Show Podcast. Music